Revelation, chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, to the church in Laodicea, and that will come up on the screen behind me. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm now going to invite up Jack to share God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's been quite a while since I've, since I've preached. I'm feeling a little bit rusty. It's about seven or eight weeks, I think, but Carl's let me back up here, so that's good. That's good. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is Jack. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's great to be diving back into our series on Revelation. We have another three weeks looking at Revelation. Uh, today, we're looking at the final of those seven letters to the church in Laodicea, and then we'll be ending with chapter five in just a couple of weeks' time. Uh, but this morning, we're looking at a church uh, in Laodicea that is self-deceptive. It's self-deceptive. Um, I, was, I was preaching at another church a few years ago, and I was in Bible college at the time. I think I was in my first year of Bible college, and I felt that I'd been learning quite a lot. I'd been provided many opportunities to preach, and, and my self-perception was that, you know, maybe I was getting the hang of this preaching thing. You know, I, I preached my sermon... And after the service, um, a mature Christian woman, she came up to me and she, she patted me on the shoulder and she looked at me with really warm and encouraging eyes and then said, you can tell that you're a Bible college student, dear. <laughs> mm. Waited for the follow-up line, it didn't come. She gave me, it was kind of like a consoling pat on the shoulder and, uh, and she didn't say anything else, she just walked away. <laughs> and like, she didn't mean it as a compliment. I think she was maybe letting me know I have a way to go yet, because I had a case of, of self-deception, and I think I was helpfully encouraged to keep growing and, and not stop learning. Well, the church in Laodicea in the passage this morning, they have a really bad case of self-deception. We meet this church in chapter 3 that we've just read out, and the, the city of Laodicea, it was very wealthy where this church was. In, in AD 60, um, Laodicea experienced a, a really, really big earthquake. But they were so wealthy, they had so much money, that they declined any sort of financial aid from Rome because they could just fix everything themselves. I mean, imagine the kind of money it would take to be able to do that for an entire city. It was a self-sufficient city. It was a city renowned for its medical industries. They had a, a unique treatment of eye diseases that was very popular that people would come to, to take part in. Uh, they were renowned for, uh, for their textile industries as well. And, and because of all this, they were just very wealthy. They were self-sufficient. They were comfortable. And the church that was in this city reflected it. We read in verse 17 this morning, Jesus saying to the church, 
You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But in the passage this morning, Jesus wants the church in Laodicea to know that this way of thinking is self-deceptive. They're blind to their true state. See, Jesus sees the true condition of that church, and he says that they need to see it as well. More than that, they need to see who Jesus is, just as we do. Because despite the true condition of the church in Laodicea, despite their self-deception, despite any of our self-deceptions or the condition that you or I are in this morning, what shines so brightly in the passage today is that Jesus doesn't shy away. Not from our self-deception and sin, not from the shame or guilt that we might be feeling this morning. Instead, we read that he stands at the door knocking. Jesus is not waiting for you to come to him. He's already come to you and he wants you to respond. He wants you to know that he is there. The question for the church in Laodicea and for us this morning is this. It's what are you striving for? What are you striving for? In your outlines this morning, you'll see uh, point one says futile striving. Um, Now, I have a love-hate relationship with running. I find it to be one of the most difficult things to do. And I have kind of stubby legs that make running long distances really hard. I get worn out really quickly. But when I lived in a share house with a group of guys, two of them who were quite fit, pretty athletic, they decided that we should all start going on morning runs during the week. And I kind of got swept up in their excitement. I was like, oh, okay, that's a great idea. Let's do it. But I got too swept up. In the end, I only ended up going on one run with them. And I spent most of the run just trying to keep up with them and trying not to vomit. Like my striving to keep up, it was completely futile. I just, I couldn't go the distance. The church in Laodicea, they, they were striving too. Swept up by the wealth of the city in which they lived, they said, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. They believe they can go the distance because they have, they have wealth. But Jesus looks at them and he sees something completely different. Now remember, Revelation gives us this, this heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances. That, that's the phrase we've come back to again and again. It gives us a heavenly perspective and our earthly circumstances. I mean, that's what this door back here is. Revelation gives us a glimpse through the doorway into heaven to see God's perspective on what's happening. Uh, So what's through the doorway today? It's a nice, lukewarm cup of coffee. It's delicious, delicious. I'll just put that back there. No one wants a lukewarm cup of coffee. In verse 14 to 16 this morning we read, To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold... I am about to spit you out of my mouth. We read that Jesus is about to spit the church in Laodicea out of his mouth. What's what's going on here? It's pretty terrifying when you think about it. Because the idea being put forward here is that the church in Laodicea, 
is leaving a bad taste in the mouth of none other than the ruler of the entire universe. The Amen, which means truly. The faithful and the true witness to the truth of who God is, to the truth of who we are. And to make things worse, they are completely blind to it. And they are about to be spat out. They are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Uh, But what does Jesus mean by, by lukewarm? Well, looking at this passage through the eyes of the church in Laodicea, they would have known about two different springs that ran through to their city. One of those springs was was hot and was really useful for resting in. When people were unwell, they visited this spring. It was very useful. The other spring was a cold spring. It was filled with pure and cold water that you could drink that was really refreshing. Again, another useful spring. But getting this water to Laodicea was pretty difficult. See, there were aqueducts that were set up to transport the water there, but by the time the water arrived in Laodicea, it was neither cold nor hot. It was just lukewarm. Therefore, kind of just useless. Undrinkable, undesirable. And Jesus is saying to the church there, you are like that lukewarm water. Think, Ouch. But how has this happened? How have they become lukewarm? In verse 17 we read, They say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. See, the wealth that the church has accumulated has blinded them to their true condition. Blinded them to the true condition of the people around them and blinded them to their need for Jesus because they believe that through their wealth they have no other need. Now, wealth is it's not a bad thing, is it? Wealth is not a bad thing. But remember last week, if you were here, what we read in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, in verse 18, I think it should be on the screen behind me, we read that some people are like seeds sown among thorns. They hear the word... But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Wealth is not a bad thing, but it's a dangerous thing, because wealth is deceptive. It distracts us from God in listening to Him. Wealth provides a sort of disguise, doesn't it, in the shape of control. Wealth kind of gives a bit of a semblance of power in our lives that that we can wield how we want. And in South Australia, in Adelaide, uh, we are wealthy. It's not all like, let's go buy yachts and Lamborghinis kind of wealthy, but for the majority of us, I think for all of us in this room, we have wealth for food, we have money for shelter, for housing, we have money for travelling, for entertainment. And these are good things. And we can thank God that we have access to them and the provision to purchase and and get them. But wealth is deceptive because it lures us into believing that we have no other need in this life. It gives us a sense of control and power and independence and something to kind of just throw at our problems to try to fix them. And so the temptation is to strive for wealth, thinking that it will solve every single problem that we have. But wealth is deceptive, that kind of sense of control that it, that it brings. 
Well, it, it falls down, doesn't it, when you're trying to deal with something like grief. You can't throw money at grief. It falls down when you can't control someone else's feelings towards you or how your friends or your family might act towards you. And as much as wealth provides access to medicines that others don't get, well, you can't buy someone back from death when it comes. And you can't stitch together a broken relationship because you have wealth. Wealth is deceptive. It deceives us into thinking it can bring everything in life that we need. But if we strive after it, it can blind us to our greatest need. Jesus says, You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, Jesus reveals our greatest need, our real need. That's point two this morning. I just need you to brace yourselves for a second. Okay, on the screen, there's going to appear a photo of me when I was a bit younger. Right. <laughs> me when I was a bit younger. There's been a slight change. You might be able to tell. Now, back then, this, I think this was my first year of uni, I would have said, like, I was pretty cool. It's a pretty cool guy, right? But what I thought, it's not what we see on the screen, is it? See, I did not realise that I was just a buffy-headed, kind of weird, like a mushroom from Mario Kart, crossed with moss from the IT crowd, <laughs> kind of looking guy, and just desperately in need of a patient hairdresser. My perception of myself, you know, it doesn't line up with the truth. Can take it down now. <laughs> well, like Jesus has said of this church in Laodicea, you say I'm rich, you say I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you don't realise that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Their perception of themselves, it's not the truth. See, in their pursuit and futile striving after the wealth of the city they lived in, they have been blinded to their true condition and their greatest need. They believe they could deal with every need through their wealth, but Jesus sees it differently. Whereas they might have felt control and power and, and comfort and ease of life, all the things that money can offer, Jesus looks at them and sees their true condition, just as he looks at us and sees ours. I remember Revelation gives us that different perspective, that heavenly perspective Revelation helps us see from God's perspective what's going on. And what does he see? What does the creator and the ruler of the universe see when he looks at the world? He sees a world that has rejected him. A world that doesn't deserve a single thing from God, doesn't deserve his wealth, but deserves to be spat out. People who strive after created things of the world rather than the creator of the world. A world that takes the good things that God has made and tries to turn those things into God's to love instead of the God who loves us. He sees people who are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. And the real need of the Laodiceans, our real need, is for this to be dealt with. And wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked people can't do anything about it. See, we're in desperate need and nothing can mask this or cover it up, no matter how much wealth we have, no matter how much we deceive ourselves into thinking otherwise. We stand before God and he sees us for who we really are. There's no covering up, no way to deal with what is on display in our hearts and our minds and our lives. Point three, 
a welcome visitor. Yeah, now, if you are that wretch, that wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked person with nothing to cower behind, which is confronting, but, well, we all are, who would you expect to come knocking on your door? If everything in your life, every bad thought and bad action and feeling, all that bad stuff, the muck in your life was just out there and everyone could see it, who would you expect to come knocking on the door? We could just expect the judge, jury and executioner to be ready to cart us away. We could expect to be spat out in disgust by God. That's what should happen. But what do we read? What does Jesus say? It says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Turn back. And he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So we read that the ruler of the entire universe steps toward us to be with us, to be close to us, to eat with us, to have fellowship with us. That's what Jesus made possible on the cross when he died. That seeing who he is and who we are and our desperate need to be rescued, we might draw close to the only one who can rescue us by turning to him in repentance and faith. The ruler of the universe invites us to be with him for eternity in his perfect kingdom where we truly have what we need and where we share in what belongs to Jesus. He says to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In verse 18, sounds like some fun out there. In verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, these aren't physical riches or clothing that Jesus is talking about. They're far greater than that. These are the riches and the clothing and the treatment that meets our real need. But how do people who are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked go about buying these things? Well, we read in another part of the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 55, of the kind of God that we have who calls us to himself. In verse 1 we read, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. See, God calls people to turn to him so that he may give what they need without cost because he pays the cost. That's what he did on the cross. How do we deal with the state of our hearts before God? Well, we don't, but he does. As we turn to him, he gives freely the purity of refined gold so that we are without blemish, so that we're sinless before God. We're given white robes, robes of righteousness, so that we can stand in his presence and a salve for our eyes that helps us see clearly the saviour that we need, that those around us need, 
that we might see the deceptiveness of wealth, that it does not provide what we need, only Christ does as we turn to him in repentance and faith. Jesus' call to this church in Laodicea is to turn back to him in repentance from the way they've been living. So he wants to be with them and he wants to be with us. So that's the church in Laodicea. For us today, how does this letter shape our response to Jesus and our response to our great need? That's point four, a priority check. Now, the question I asked at the beginning was, what are you striving for? What are you striving for? We live in a culture here in Adelaide, I think, that pursues um, human flourishing uh, completely to the exclusion of God. God is not included in that at all. The felt need is this authenticity and flourishing as individuals so that we might be content and happy in life. And wealth plays a really big part in that. I think it's because wealth feeds restlessness. It feeds restlessness and it seems to provide ultimate solutions. And in Adelaide, we are wealthy. There are many things that show this. Um, For example, when we don't like our job, um, we can move jobs, sometimes with relative ease. When we don't like where we live, it is generally within our means to be able to just get up and move. When we don't like how we look, we can even, we can even change that. People in other parts of this world, they, the majority in fact, they can't do any of those things. It's a blessing to be in a situation where, where we can make some of those changes, but it provides the risk of pursuing contentedness and joy in those things as our greatest need. It takes up more and more of our time as we breathe in the air around us that says our great need is to flourish as an individual and be content in that. It means that our eyes and hearts are turned toward our career progressions or our houses or our holidays or our cars or our image. And instead of being restless because we see brokenness around us that only Christ can fix, we become restless because we feel we aren't flourishing in the way that the person next to us seems to be flourishing. But Jesus provides a different perspective, doesn't he? Our true condition and the true condition of those around us is such that we need Christ today just as much as we needed him yesterday, the day before that, the day before that. Just as much as we needed him when he died on the cross to take away our sin and to clothe us with his righteousness so that we would be safe in his love and in fellowship with our saviour. See, we can't lose the perspective that we need Jesus. So how should we perceive wealth? Well, it shouldn't be as the thing that fits our every need and turns our eyes away from Jesus. It should be the thing that we view through Jesus as something that's not ultimate, that cannot bring life, that we should not be deceived by or strive for. When we stand before Jesus on the last day when he returns to judge the living and the dead, because that will happen, will you have been striving futilely for a thing that cannot and will not satisfy or fulfill your real need? Or will you have turned to the one who offers freely what you do need and be found safe in him? Don't be lured in by the deceitfulness of wealth. What are you striving for? Ask yourself the question, how would the people around me describe what I'm striving for? What would they say? Would they say that your life is characterised by your faith in Jesus and your obedience to him? 
Or would they say your life is characterized by your faith in wealth and obedience to your career? Or your pursuit of self-flourishing and contentedness? What does it show to the people around us who don't recognize their greatest need if we live lives that are just the same as the world around us? He strives after the same thing. When you look at the person across the street who doesn't know Jesus, do you see someone who's just doing well in life and isn't in need? Or do you see someone languishing when they don't even know they are? Because they don't recognize that their greatest need is Christ. When Jesus looked out at the crowds who were following him, he saw people in need, in desperate need. People who were lost. People gone astray from God. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Does that make you feel sort of restless? Because I think it should. I mean, what grace and mercy that God has shown to us that while we were seen as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked, he chose to pursue us into the brokenness of a world that hated him for no other reason but that he loves us so that he could take that brokenness onto his shoulders, our sin onto his shoulders and put it to death so that we might have life. And we don't deserve it, but we know we need it. And we know those around us need him more than anything. So let that restlessness this week drive you off the couch to connect with and love those people in your life who don't know Christ. To share your life with them in small and big ways. To bring them in. To be a friend to them that they might see in your life that your greatest need has been met. And that theirs can be too, but only in Christ. Now you might be here this morning and you're kind of feeling on the other side of things. And you're really feeling that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Well, hear the words of Jesus. Words that are spoken straight to you this morning. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. If you turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, your greatest need is met. You are forgiven. Your shame and guilt are dealt with and your life and eternity are secure with the God who has pursued you and who calls you to himself by coming to you. So let me lead us in talking to this great God now. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that our greatest need has been met in Christ. Please help us to not be lured in by the deceitfulness of wealth, but to strive after you. Please help us see the people around us for who they are. People whose real need will only ever be met in Christ. Please stir in us a restlessness that will drive us off our couches to share you with people who desperately need you. Father, we praise you for the life you have given us in Christ, for your love for us, that we can call ourselves your children loved by you. Amen.